Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, we're back again. The previous interview we just did, I was pretty distracted because we had this humongous storm just roll through. So if, uh, if the Wi-Fi blinks, I'm coming back on. Don't, uh, don't, let me, uh, don't let me die off. Oh, we'll, we'll just leave you behind because if this podcast is going to go anyway, like uh, we, we just chatted, you know, pre-getting on uh, the recording, I don't think we can stop. We'll just have to leave you. I've been excited about this interview for a long time. This is, uh, I, 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 this is a fascinating human being that we're having on today. And uh, without, you know, spending any more time talking about her, let's introduce her. This is Rhonda Kelly. Uh, great friend, fascinating human, nurse, paramedic, firefighter, uh, mental health advocate, and the current wellness director for Global Medical Response and the founder of All Clear Foundation. The list just goes on and on, but absolutely amazing human. Rhonda, thanks uh, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. I'm really excited to join both of you and appreciate the invite. So Rhonda and I have met uh, many years ago when she was, uh, she had developed a nonprofit called Responder Strong, and we got to meet up in Denver. And one of the most crazy things was this, uh, virtual headset that she had us playing around and walking out on a plank it was nerve-wracking and i could hear her cackling in the background of me walking oh, on yeah. this uh tiny plank of a thing that was all virtual it was it just seemed so real and such a great introduction and uh start of a start of a friendship so glad you're here Rhonda. thanks brad i'm glad to be here too it's been too long <laughs> well let's get started into a little bit uh with just who Rhonda is like tell us a little bit about the uh where you started in on this uh nursing paramedic firefighter journey tell us what 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 drove you maybe as a teen or as a kiddo to get involved and then tell us a little bit about uh uh, about the introduction of that. Oh, fantastic. So my background, as you know, Brad, is pretty random. I majored in physics in college, got to my senior year and realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life locked in a lab with radiation by myself, which is how I spent college. So in trying to figure out what do I want to be when I grow up, I happened to take an intro to oceanography course my last semester, really enjoyed it, learned that there's this thing, physical oceanography, the physics of the ocean. I applied for grad school, got into the University of Washington out in Seattle, moved out there, realized Seattle's gray a lot, and I'm solar powered. So I spent as much time volunteering to do research cruises as I could. So I was on ships doing expedition, doing a lot of watering, water filtering. And about Two years into the three years master's program, I got a call from a former professor who said, hey, I'm operating a research station in Bermuda. I've heard you're not really happy in Seattle. You can run all the equipment. I need a tech to run. Do you want to drop out and move to Bermuda? Which, you know, it only took me about 15 seconds to process that offer, uh, accepted it, dropped out of grad school, moved to Bermuda, spent a year and a half there, loved it, um, part ship based, part island based. Same professor came in one day to the lab about a year and a half in and said, hey, my tech just broke his leg. I have an expedition leaving Easter Island next week. Can you go tomorrow? So I took off, went to Easter Island, got to spend a week there, spent the next three months in the South Pacific and met a lot of researchers who had the same dilemma. 
we've got a lot of funding for research. We don't have a lot of funding for overhead. We need people who will live out of a backpack and go ship to ship and just filter water for us. So there was a very small growing pool of contract oceanographic technicians. I joined that, spent the next couple of years traveling around the world, filtering water, met some people from the Antarctic program who said, yeah, that's cool, but do you want to work on icebreakers? Like, yeah, I do. <laughs> so uh, I signed up with them and spent the next four years working on research platforms on icebreakers in the Antarctic. Loved every minute of it, except for the few on the open water crossings when I was vomiting over the rail. Um, seasickness <laughs> took me a while to get past, but um, really loved it. The great thing was the our support crew on the icebreakers was so small everybody was required to wear multiple hats. And two of the hats I picked up were hazardous materials technician and emergency medical technician. So really enjoyed that. When I was closing in on 30 and decided it was time to get my quote unquote adult job, a decision I still regret, I decided I want to get into emergency medicine. I really like the emergency aspects. So I landed in Denver where the Antarctic program had been based was shadowing nurses and PAs in an ER, thinking I wanted to go one of those paths, while I was volunteering as a remote ambulance EMT and working as a paid EMT for a, an urban provider. I kept seeing firefighter paramedics come into the ER, thought that just looked like too much fun. Jump ship again, proverbially, became a firefighter paramedic in Aurora, Colorado. Um, was there for 17 years. On the side, I picked up my nursing degree and was working as a part-time nurse in the ER and also in the psych ER at Porter Adventist in Denver. About 10 years into my career, I recognized I was seeing some big changes in myself, in my coworkers, in my husband, who was also a firefighter, in the cops, in the EMTs, and the medics, and um, the ER staff that I worked with, recognizing we all got into this job to help others. And many of us were suffering for that mission in large part because we hadn't been taught, we hadn't been trained how to recognize what we now recognize as stress injury and how to protect ourselves from it and how to recover from it. In 2011, as you know, I had some outreach uh, from the University of Colorado's medical school, CU Anschutz, saying they wanted to work with firefighters. What did we need? The response was we need to stop working within the boundaries of our own branches and of our own agencies. We need to work together. Suicide is our one of our leading occupational killers. We're not talking about it. And we're not teaching people how to protect themselves. And more than anything, we need to change our culture because our culture has been eat its own and has had a really strong negative response to anybody's admission of mental or emotional impact. You've heard it too. Um, the, the common answer is, well, you just must be weak. Why don't you get out? Um, so at the time they thought it was a great idea. They didn't know how to fund it. Life moved on a couple of years later, the university reached back out. It was the national mental health innovation center who said, Hey, we have some funding to reach out to wellness resistant populations. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> My favorite description of the fire service in particular, 200 years of tradition unhindered by progress, um, said, yeah, I, I would like to start this initiative. So they gave me the opportunity to found responder strong. I left the department that year to run Responder Strong full-time, um, left nursing, didn't have the time for that anymore. As you know, Brad, with your help and the help of many other volunteers from across branches, we allied with 
researchers, clinicians, educators, foundations, hospital systems to really reach out and be effective in targeting as many people we, as we could with the highest quality content that we could. We grew rapidly from a Colorado organization to a national organization. In 2019, All Clear Foundation reached out to me. They had just been founded by Global Medical Response and wanted to focus on overall responder well-being. They wanted to learn from our mistakes, and I was more than happy to share them, had plenty to share. Um, that seems to be the way I learn the hard way. <laughs> and, uh, um, so the three of the founders of All Clear Foundation were top-level executives at Global Medical Response, which is the largest EMS organization in the U.S., in conversations with them, I said, hey, law enforcement and fire, they've got it tough. Dispatch has got it tougher. But EMS has a unique situation. There is no national standard for how to support EMS personnel because EMS has been so fractured. A vast majority of it is, is rural and volunteer, and I'd had that experience. Then we've got the municipal-based organizations, the hospital-based organizations, and the private organizations, which tend to be small tend to be run like mills. They have high turnover rates, low pay, low benefits, really challenging working conditions. You're GMR. I think you have the resources. I think you have the footprint. And I think you have the ethical responsibility to do something about that. They were fantastic. They said, we agree. We hadn't looked at it that way. So they said, well, how about you put your money where your mouth is and you come work for us, create a national wellness program for our 38,000 personnel air and ground, EMS, and fire department. They own Rural Metro Fire. And you roll Responder Strong into All Clear Foundation to really bolster our mental health content. So did that in January of 2020, not realizing GMR is FEMA's disaster emergency medical contractor and that COVID was coming. So GMR was in the unique situation where they had thousands of paramedics, EMTs, and flight crews deployed across the country in particularly heinous circumstances, particularly during the surge in New York and New Jersey. We knew that people were really going to struggle because this was next level and what we were asking them to do. So we launched a wellness program that had peer support, 24 seven crisis support from mental health providers who were culturally competent, who understood the job and understood that oftentimes what is being called just alcoholism or just quote unquote anxiety is actually a surface symptom of the deeper underlying trauma that this individual has been exposed to and who understand you have to go after the trauma if you want to treat the other. So we had tremendous success. One of the things I've seen um, both within GMR, within All Clear Foundation, and nationally within the responder population is that COVID did us one favor in that it accelerated destigmatization and normalization of the mental and emotional impacts of the job at a level that I, I didn't anticipate. We're fully a decade ahead of where I thought we would be with destigmatization. And now we find ourselves in the unique situation where the demand is outpacing the culturally competent resources that we have available. So it's, as you and I have discussed many times, Brad, a um, very good time to be in the responder mental health business. And now we're not having to drag people to the, the fountain, to the water to drink. People are coming to us and asking where, where the fountain is. So it's it's been unique. And in January, no, not January, November of 2020, I became the executive director of All Clear. So we've been running in parallel between GMR and All Clear nationally. And uh, it's not boring. 
That is absolutely uh, an amazing. And so, so I want to step back to, uh, you know, your, your adventurous spirit here has not been quashed by the challenge that's in front of you and you've undertaken something absolutely amazing, but let's, let's, let's back up and get in the weeds here a little bit, because one of the things that, uh, that we try to do with the podcast is talk about uh, each and honor, I should say, we try to honor each of these specific disciplines and we really haven't talked about Austin. We have not talked about some of the emergency medical folks. And so, so we have in front of us, somebody who can really speak to that. What, what maybe um, would be significant challenges to that culture and that discipline that maybe law enforcement or firefighters don't normally have. Well, I was going to say also the similarities, right? Because I think it's important to note that there's differences and similarities in each different type of responder. And you're exactly right. We we haven't dove into the the medical um, side of things as much as as we would like. So I'm super interested if you could just kind of let us know what what the differences are, what the similarities are as well. Oh, fantastic. I love the question and the insight behind that question. So referencing back earlier that EMS hasn't had the standards nationally set for how employers should take care of their employees. That's something we're working toward. NREMT has been working towards this. NHTSA has been working toward it. It's definitely a collaborative effort. And that's one of the things I love about the work that you two have done, you in particular, Brad, and that we've done as organizations is that we understand the problem is huge. None of us can solve it on our own. So that power of strategic partnership is really how we can force multiply all of our efforts and have a greater impact but referencing back to EMS in particular, before we started, we talked a little bit about the Strube Calkins Center for Suicide Research that was founded in part by Chris Calkins, a former paramedic who went and got his doctorate in psychology, was very, very interested in suicide among responders. One of their first projects, and you can um, find it if you Google it, was a study of all of the emergency responders in the state of I believe it was Minnesota, they sent out a survey and the number one factor they found most highly correlated with suicidal ideation among emergency responders was holding an EMS certification. When they looked into that, they realized there's a couple reasons for this. Yes, EMS is usually responding with law enforcement and with fire. That's great. They're all tied in with dispatch. So all four of those major sub-demographics are on the call. There's obviously crime scene investigators, coroners, personnel, others, but what is different about the, U the EMS experience to your question? And what they found was we know we all code trauma through all of our sensory pathways. We can smell things. Unfortunately, sometimes we can taste things. We hear, we see. And what they see with EMS is that they also add the touch component, doing compressions, starting a line, decompressing a chest. Um, that is another pathway for coding trauma. The other big factor that they found, and this is something that is continuous across all the branches, none of us were taught how to deliver a death notification in a way that is kind and compassionate and in a way that doesn't make us feel like a failure. And that is where they found is really one of the most significant impacts on EMS personnel is now you've had this direct contact, you've established this bond with the patient, and now you have to turn around and talk to their family or their loved ones and say, yeah, hey, couldn't do anything, so sorry, they're gone. And 
just, we weren't ever prepared to deal with that emotional onslaught. And many times when we don't know how to deal with grief and we don't understand that grief is the beginning of the healing process for those who are impacted by this loss, we code grief as pain and we think we caused it. So I remember how many times I left a field pronouncement feeling like crap, just, I didn't do anything to help. I hurt the family. You know, we got into this job to help people. Wow. And I've seen that in so many EMS professionals, whether it's straight EMS, air medical, fire-based EMS, or to carry over to my other experience in the hospital as nurses, as physicians, as PAs, we just leave feeling awful. And one of the big messages we've been spreading to EMS, particularly going back to the surge with COVID in New York and New Jersey, our personnel from GMR were responding on calls. The, the resuscitation protocols were suspended. So if somebody did not have a pulse or a viable rhythm, there was no CPR because there was no place to take them to. So they were doing a lot more field pronouncements, having to tell the family there and having to leave the body, knowing that the coroner's office was so overwhelmed, it was going to be days before anybody came to get that body out of the, the, the housing unit. Then when they did transport, they would have to tell family members, you can't go. I'm so sorry. When everybody knew this was probably the last time they were going to see the patient. So layering upon layering of emotional impact and then driving into the hospitals, passing all the mobile morgues, the refrigerated trucks stacked with body bags, body bags in the hall, patients on vents in the hall. And it was just this accumulated trauma that people just didn't know how to deal with. So we started talking to them about, you have to redefine your metric for success. If it's resuscitation, you're going to fail on every call because that's no longer an option. And it goes against every fiber in your being because that's what you're trained to do. So now let's talk about what did you do? Did you respond rapidly? Did you treat the body with compassion? Did you treat the patient with compassion? Did you treat the family with compassion? Did you deliver the death notification in a kind way? Did you leave? having done everything that you possibly could and understood that you did everything you possibly could and walked away with your head held high because you did something in that situation, nobody else could have done. And in particular, when you're transporting a patient who ultimately winds up dying, especially if it's during the transport, you didn't let that patient die alone. How much does that mean? Not only to the patient, but the family, because they couldn't be there. So we really have been messaging, particularly with EMS, Change your metrics for success because you are doing a whole lot more good than you think you are on those calls. And then some of the other interesting aspects we've seen with EMS is um, when we look at the air medical side. Wow, that's a whole different level. And we see that each of those different roles. So the standard staffing is the pilot, who's often overlooked, the flight nurse, and the flight medic. Highly safety sensitive uh, culture. They are a sub-demographic of EMS because there's very little margin for error with rotor or fixed wing. Um, we know that oftentimes um, the flight crews encounter near misses. So a hard landing, um, scary turbulence, an engine failure, things like that. And in the past, EMS leaders of their organizations didn't understand. They thought basically no harm, no foul. Um, you didn't die, no big deal. What we know is that a near miss is almost as bad as a fatal 
accident. For those who are involved, it brings a lot of concerns around mortality. It brings a lot of fears um, around future flights, or it can. It brings a lot of concerns around safety. It brings a lot of concerns to those crew members, family members. So they're getting pressure at home. Why are you doing this? I don't feel comfortable with you doing this. So we've been really trying to work with the, the flight crews as a whole around that and really responding to near misses, just like we would a, a crash. The other um, crew member, the pilots, we're really paying a lot of attention to pilots right now. A lot of our pilots are combat veterans. Oftentimes, as we, we all know that about 30% of emergency responders are active or former military, many of them bringing in pre-existing stress injury and not knowing what to do about it or thinking because they escaped the environment or the uniform or the occupational setting that they left it behind just to be triggered again in this work, which is a, a trigger-rich environment. But what we see big time with the pilots is oftentimes not only can they be bringing in pre-existing stress injury, but they're regulated more, more strictly than the rest of us are through the FAA. Item 18, do you have a medical diagnosis around mental health? Are you taking a prescription outside of these four SSRIs for your mental health and well-being? And if so, there is a, an implicit and often an exercised threat to their license. If you're no longer deemed medically capable of flying, not only do you lose your license, you lose your identity and you, you, you lose your livelihood. So one of the big things we see among pilots is they won't reach out for help. And we're trying to eliminate that level of struggling to say there are ways to reach out for help early on. Early on is more effective. Early intervention, early detection. We can get you a diagnosis of stress management. FAA is not going to do anything about that. Let's get you to a provider who's culturally competent and understands that. And then let's get you back up to a state where you feel really good, where you're not struggling and suffering personally, and you're no longer worried about your license and you're safer. Um, we see across all of the branches that when we don't know what to do and when we're fearful of getting a prescription, we like to numb and the most commonly numbing used numbing substance, and you guys know this, this is what Chateau's business is built on, is alcohol. Um, and Back and I'm just rambling, so sorry about that. But I get all excited about this, and I love that you're focused on the EMS experience. Rhonda, Rhonda, please don't apologize. This is fascinating. Uh, this is such great information. I, I, I am going to back up and just actually offer a blurb of uh, my particular experience with the death notification piece is so incredibly painful. Uh, and and uh, there's a couple of my death notifications that still to this day uh, that that I could if I told the story. Uh, one in particular was a burned body. I could smell that burned body. It is so, uh, it is so right there stored uh, so closely. Uh, but, but the, uh, what's fascinating about this, and you did such a great job of describing this culture and even some of the subculture. I, I don't know that I put much thought into uh, these specialized subculture units, like the, the flight paramedics and the flight nurses. I mean, that's, that, flight piece is a big deal. And, and what came to mind was even some of our federal officers in fear of losing their creds, their security clearances. I mean, that, that immediately registered with me that that pilot, uh, you know, is in fear of losing uh, his livelihood, basically, and what he's passionate about, which is, you know, helping people, saving lives, flying them here and there. Uh, what a what a fascinating conversation. So, OK, so to kind of recenter it. Uh, we talked about the differences of the EMS 
and medical uh, culture. What are some of this overlap similarities to to that um, kind of kind of um, between the cultures and what you're seeing within uh, you know your your research and the, the information that you've seen over time? What are the what are the overlap pieces that are are very similar for emergency medical? Well. That is a great question. And you know, Brad, from back in the early days of Responder Strong, we really debated, did we want to use the term first responders or did we want to use the term emergency responders? And to outsiders, it seemed like just semantics. Why are you debating this? But to us, it was very, very key in our identity as an organization and the inclusiveness that our, our the population we serve felt. So we chose emergency responder as the broader umbrella term to identify people who are specially trained, whether career or volunteer, to support their communities in times of emergency, disaster, or crisis, who were not taught how to protect themselves from what we borrowed from the military, the stress injury formation model, and who have traditionally operated in cultures that eat their own, that don't allow for people to acknowledge the impacts on the human behind the badge, the uniform, or the scrub. So we wanted to use a more inclusive term. And to your, your point, we serve EMS, fire, law enforcement, dispatch, who are often overlooked, even though they're the first of the first responders. But we also serve our brothers and sisters in the coroner's office, medical examiners, crime scene investigators, search and rescue, ski patrol, disaster workers, frontline healthcare workers, and the unifying personality or characteristics of these providers, these emergency responders that we see, regardless if you are in an urban setting, a rural setting, a career, a volunteer, a mountain, a hospital, is that we all get into this job for some variation of the reason to help others. We all hold ourselves very, very accountable. We hold ourselves to a high standard and we often confuse self-flagellation, self-beration for taking responsibility, not understanding that we're further driving the shame cycle that has been perpetuated by our cultures. And when we talk about our cultures, we see in all of these cultures this glorification, this glamorization of martyrdom, take care of everybody else, you should just be able to do this job. We see this glorification of what we understand are stress injuries. Well, yeah, so you're on your second or third divorce. Maybe you drink too much on a regular basis. Maybe an EMS or fire-based EMS, your partner's having to start an IV on you before the shift. Um, maybe you are grouchy and grumpy and your personality has been changing and everyone around you thinks it's just a character flaw. I mean, the list goes on and on. So when we talk about similarities, I really see that we have similar motivations, we have very similar personalities, and we experience very similar negative impacts because our cultures have never taught us how to take care of the human behind the mission. And it isn't until we get to that point and we put the human first, and I know this analogy is so tired, but it's the oxygen mask analogy on the plane. We are not going to be effective in the short term or in the long term if we're not putting our own oxygen mask on first. And we really have to show people that if you want to be effective in this job, and I, I love all of the branding of tactical athlete and, um, you know, tactical breathing, um, you can throw tactical in front of anything and, and responders will sign on to it that, hey, we, we are asked to perform in some pretty stressful situations and we're asked to perform at a pretty high level. We deserve to be trained and supported 
at those levels. Yeah, I, I agree. This is just the simple uh, yoga breathing to renaming it to combat breathing is almost comical. Just, just, just that simple little, you know, nugget of, Hey, it's, it's now cool and acceptable to do yoga based uh, breathing styles. I want to circle back to something that you actually mentioned a while ago, which was uh, that COVID, the, the, one of the good things that had come out of COVID was this destigmatization of mental health. Let's explore that a little bit. What, what have you seen from that? That's a, that's a fascinating component. And I think it should be explored a little bit. What have you seen from that? Uh, it, it, can we expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to expand on that. I think one of the biggest things is things finally got so crazy and over the top, almost every responder, whether you're in the hospital or in the field, recognized this is not me being weak. We are being asked to do crazy things. In particular, um, you know, with my affinity for the nursing profession in, and the devastation we're seeing in that profession, last year, more than 126,000 nurses nationally left the profession. They didn't just go to another treatment facility. They didn't go to another hospital system they flat out left the profession. And you think about the burnout that it takes to take somebody who is so passionate about this to go through nursing school and to serve as a nurse in whatever capacity and to walk away from that. Oh my gosh. So I think what happened in large part was responders across the board were asked to jeopardize their own personal safety. Many of them felt like rightfully so that they were jeopardizing the safety of their family. So it wasn't just personal in danger in any, anymore. What if I contract this virus and I don't know it and I take it home and grandma dies or my special needs child dies or, you know, there's this repercussion through my family, um, asked to do a lot of overtime. Everything was changed. The addition of PPE for everybody was just another layer of stress and thought and decision making that had to go into every day. There was no more routine. This is just what we do. Everything was more burdensome. And there was so much public focus in recognizing wow, hey, let's bang pots in the street. The responders are doing a good job for us. We've asked them to do a lot. So I think all of that really played into the normalization where people realized I'm not just doing my job. Um, I'm doing a heck of a lot more and I deserve some support because it's taking its toll on me. And, and that, Brad, I know you and I have talked about this before, especially in conjunction with the mental health curriculum and when we teach it. Brad's one of our master trainers. He does a phenomenal job for us on that. And um, we, we talk a lot about not only do responders think by beating themselves up, they're holding themselves accountable, but we think that responders believe that the more I suffer, the more I'm really earning my role, that I, I need to suffer to do this job well. And what we want to transition that message to is, no, 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 you need to suffer well. If you're suffering, you need to understand why, and you need to go to the right form of treatment. You need to reach out and ask for the support around that. And I don't think we would have gotten there without this huge external stressor that, that we experienced with COVID. And the other messaging that we've included a lot in the mental health curriculum is the gratitude practice when we're talking about resiliency section that everybody knows. If you try to shift your brain from the negative and response work hones that negativity bias to a fine edge, we, we don't go into scenes looking for design ideas or things we're grateful for. We look for what went wrong, what else could go wrong, and how are we going to prevent it? So we're always shifting towards the negative. So yes, thinking of three things we're grateful for every day, writing them down at night before we go to bed, that is fantastic because it's teaching our brain to look for the positive instead of the negative. 
But what research is showing, and Stanford's done a lot around this, is that the biggest bang for our buck with gratitude is receiving it. And I think this is this part of the shift that we saw with COVID is responders were just inundated with gratitude from a lot of people, not across the board. Obviously, there were some other responses, um, but for responders to, to feel that and to feel how nice it felt, we've seen our culture in the past has encouraged responders when somebody thanks them. The knee jerk reaction is no big deal. Just doing my job. Don't mention it. And when we look at it in the context of that research, they're deflecting the recharge for their batteries and thinking back to the nurses who are exodusing in mass the profession. They're burnt out because their batteries are not being recharged. They're no longer finding fulfillment in the work. And this is one thing we're telling responders you can do when somebody thanks you. Accept it. Just say, oh, you're welcome. Or I appreciate that. And in any time and and allow that human connection, because that's what it is to fire up those neural pathways in your brain and let you feel slightly recharged. Because when you're deflecting somebody trying to thank you, not only are you deflecting the recharge for you, but you're, you're not giving them the opportunity to sincerely uh, express their appreciation for what you did. So it's a lose, lose when it could have been an easy win-win. You know, the, the, uh, the interesting part of this is it, it, and Austin, I, neither one, well, I won't speak for Austin. I don't know the emergency medical, uh, community as well. So, so it's, that's heartbreaking actually to hear that statistic of so many nurses, uh, leaving the profession and exiting because we need those people in place. But, what are some of the uh, what are some of those challenges that, that exist for them uh, currently? I, I mean, I know you know within our culture there are, you know environmental challenges, external administrative administrative betrayal, those types of things. Is there? Do you see because you have this broader picture of all these different disciplines? Uh, is, is it similar in that medical industry of some of the same challenges? I, I know it's not the same, but do they have those similar? Uh, existing challenges, leadership uh, challenges in the uh, medical industry as well? Oh, absolutely. Because we all know the healthcare system is a well-oiled, efficient machine um, with conscious <laughs> ethics. Um, no, I mean, there are a lot of systemic challenges in the healthcare industry. I think those spill over into most of the establishments, the systems in emergency response, whether it's EMS, fire, law enforcement. And that's something, Brad, I know you've heard uh, we get frequently questioned when we're teaching the mental health curriculum by people, well, this is all well and good, teaching me resiliency and teaching me self-awareness, but the problem's not me, it's the system. So, you know, we would debate that the problem is both um, or the challenge is in both. Um, we are, many of us are struggling, are suffering as uh, a result of the impacts from our occupations. And there are systemic challenges when we take care of ourselves and we put ourselves in a more stable position, in a healthier position, in a position that's more grounded, we are better able to address the systemic challenges. And what we're doing as an organization, all clear through Responder Strong, isn't affecting systemic change per se. We are affecting individual change with the intention that that individual change will eventually drive systemic change. So I think that's one of the big things. And I love that you mentioned administrative betrayal. We know that is one of the largest or the most frequently identified stressors for emergency responders, regardless of their branch. In the field, uh, we oftentimes feel empowered that we can do something, we can take action, we can affect the outcome, not always, but often. 
administratively, we oftentimes feel powerless and the slide into victim mindset does not serve any of us well. That's, that's a hallmark of, of a stress injury forming. Um, with nurses in particular, in regards to your question, one of the other big things we saw during COVID is with the short staffing and the overwhelming demand, the burden on the hospital system, travel nurses were being called in en masse to help staff units and to help take care of patients. What we see with the nursing staff, the, the regular staff, they would look at that and think, holy cow, I have moved into an apartment or a hotel room or an RV to try and uh, isolate myself from my family. I've taken every overtime shift you asked. I haven't had vacation in a year, year and a half. I asked for a raise and I was told the hospital couldn't afford it. But then all these travel nurses were brought in at three times the rate. So a huge amplification of that administrative betrayal and feeling unappreciated, feeling like what they, they did wasn't seen, wasn't valued, and catching it from all sides, feeling unsupported by administration, um, feeling un, uh, like they were the target of the family, people coming in and taking it out on the nursing staff in particular when they were asked to wear masks, um, when they were advised of other restrictions involved in patient care. I mean, nurses just felt like they were taking it from all sides. And, and I completely understand why um, we've seen the exodus that we are seeing. And it's interesting when you juxtapose that with what's happening in the mental health professional community also. So now coming off of COVID, when in the response community, and not just us, but socially, nationally, we've seen a great destigmatization of mental health challenges and increased awareness, and people are now willing to reach out for help. Well, now, thankfully, but poor timing, the mental health providers are taking their own advice and saying, okay, I need better boundaries. <laughs> I need to take care of myself first. I'm going to cut back on my patient load. Um, I am going to take time off. So now in this time that we are seeing increased demand for qualified mental health services, we are seeing providers retract those services just so that they can protect themselves for the long haul. So it's, it's a fascinating series of snowballs that just started rolling down the mountain and, and I see them smashing together. It's that's a hundred percent correct. I mean, on the mental health side, just for us to, to find a culturally competent therapist, it took us about four months. And comparatively to three years ago, it's also $20,000 more a year. So it's a good thing, right? These people deserve to get paid that amount and they deserve, you know, the hours and all of those things uh, as well. But there's something, and I'm going to tell a, a little story and I, and I want you to dive into this if you can. So uh, we had a client who was a, a nurse uh, and she referred to her profession as the, um, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting this phrase right, the wicked redheaded stepchild of first response. And she actually, now we clinically had to step in on this and have a conversation, of course, as well, but she felt like she was not allowed or shouldn't be in first responder specific groups and therapy and, and things along those lines because she felt a different, not a part of, right? W what's going on culturally there and what can we do to, to change that? Because, you know, we just talked about a ton of similarities, right? We talked about some of the differences that are possibly even more challenging as a career to face. Oh, love that question or that comment, that story. So part of my reasoning behind getting my nursing license once I was a firefighter paramedic 
is I was starting to get a little fried with our frequent flyers, feeling like I wasn't having the impact. I wasn't getting the fulfillment out of the calls that I had been. And I wanted to figure out a way to rectify that. So I thought I'm going to get my RN. I'm going to go work in the ER. I'm going to figure out what I could do better in the field to set the patient up for success when they arrive at the ER. Um, and of course, when I got there and was working in the ER, I discovered all the exact same challenges that I was experiencing in the field, duh, because that's where we take our patients, one. Um, but two, you know, they have their own frequent flyers. They have their own patients who feel very entitled and don't understand they're not the only one in the system. They have a lot of the same administrative stressors. They have a lot of the same shift schedule challenges. They have a lot of the uh, perceived hierarchy, you know, doctor, nurse, PA in there somewhere, tech, um, feeling invalidated, feeling undervalued. Um, but I always saw that there was a lot of camaraderie between the ER staff and the field staff. And for me in particular, I was always grateful when I saw a flight nurse and a flight medic show up on a scene. Because if we were calling in a chopper, it was a highly critical call. And I was relieved when I saw those professionals who always approached in a really calm and pulled together fashion knew what to do. I could give them the report, give them the patient and know that things were, were moving in the right direction. So I've, from my perspective, which granted is unique, I've always seen those two populations as being mirrored or, or very, very, very similar. I can see why somebody, and I'm curious if it was her individual opinion or if it's broader, I think it's, it's a sub opinion. I don't think that's the broadest opinion across the healthcare staff. Part of the reason we chose to include them in everything we do in Responder Strong and now do in All Clear is it's part of the continuum of care. There's all those similarities that we discussed earlier, but we're seeing the same stress injuries. And what I'm hearing in her is we're the stepchild. Yep, I also hear that from EMS. I hear that from volunteers. I hear that from search and rescue. And I think that's part of the injury. And to our mind, the best way to heal that specific aspect of injury is to bring everybody together to see we are way more similar than we are different. And yes, there are some unique challenges each of us experience layered upon the challenges of the job. Um, in particular right now, um, LGBTQ plus community, um, other underrepresented minorities, we understand they have other additional stressors, but wow, in the foundation, just because of the work we do and the people we are, we're experiencing a lot of the same um, challenges and a lot of the same injuries. Do you think that lends itself to uh, maybe the, the beginning of isolation where you say, okay, I'm different, you know, I'm, 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 I'm unique uh, because you see that with uh, a lot of the subcultures within law enforcement and fire as well. You know, I'm SWAT, I'm, I'm motors, I'm, you know, these, you, you right. Is it, is I'm, am no I on something here? me, no one else has it this bad. Well, and it's that comparative suffering that we talk about in the mental health curriculum. And it's, it's interesting that um, we see it in two ways in responders. Um, one is that when responders are feeling bad, they'll oftentimes tell themselves based on what they're seeing in the job, well, other people have it so much worse than I do. And we hear it in particular with responders comparing themselves to responders who are combat vets saying, well, he or she was in combat they were shot. I don't know why I'm feeling this bad. Um, I only, you know, have had five pediatric deaths this week. I've only this, this comparative suffering. So it is diminishing their own personal experience, which is increasing the shame and the isolation that I don't, I haven't earned this injury 
basically. Then the other big flip side that we see to that is um, the comparison where somebody gets to the point where they're so wounded, they think I've got it worse than everybody else. Nobody else could possibly understand the state that I'm in. And I'm just going to isolate because not because I don't want to burden them, but because they can't possibly help me. And I think both of those are, are stress injuries and different manifestations. I absolutely love this. So as captivating as this is, I want to move us to, uh, to all clear. Uh, and, and I absolutely love training for all clear. It's a, it's, it's a, such a great training, but tell us a little bit about all clear, uh, how, how you, how you got in. I mean, you kind of already did tell us how you got in it, but tell us about all clear, what they offer, what the resource is, uh, and, and, uh, even give that plug for the training. Oh, fantastic. So we are a national nonprofit, all clear foundation. Our mission is to support the overall well-being and longevity of emergency responders, including healthcare workers to our earlier conversation and their families. That's another big trend we're seeing in the nonprofit and for-profit world in responder wellness is this upfront inclusion of the family members. We know they wear an invisible uniform. They oftentimes pay a price for our service that they don't understand. And we, we recognize if we really wanna support responders, that we've got to take care of the family also. And that includes the whole spectrum of supports we provide for the responders. Everything from awareness and education. I'm a big believer in the Maya Angelou statement that we do the best we can until we know better and then we do better. So we start with awareness and education. We move on to personal empowerment through uh, private individual tools. We move on to departmental education. Beyond that, we move towards systemic support. So external supports, whether it's proactive, when somebody starts to realize I'm not feeling right and I want to figure this out, or it's crisis with I'm, I I can't fight the suicidal ideation anymore and I need to get to somebody who can help me. Um, to your point, Austin, one of the big partners we have is a group called National Emergency Responder and Public Safety Center. That was founded by Dr. Jamie Brower in Denver. She and Aurora Police Department's wellness officer at the time, Mike Petrusu, and I built out the first nationally recognized APA-endorsed mental health curriculum certification for mental health providers who want to work with our population. And the key to that is that it's for master's level providers and above. So Jamie is the head of the ABAPS uh, American Board of Professional Psychologists training division. So she's one of the people who sign off on the police and public safety board certification, the first nationally recognized standard. That is so rigorous. You have to have a doctorate. You have to have been in practice for many years. There are only, I think, 78 of them across the country, and almost all of them are overflowing with pre-employment screenings and psych fit for duties. So none of us want to go share our problems with them because of that fear in the back of our head. It's going to bite me later. It's going to come back, which is unfounded, but there. And um, perception is Trump's reality every time. So Jamie recognized we need to do something for master's level clinicians that is very robust, that gets them national level CEUs, hence the APA, and that equips them to better support our personnel. So we created a 40-hour didactic program that's web-based to allow accessibility geographically wherever the provider is at their own time. It's asynchronous. And then it requires a 16-hour experiential component that requires them to do a ride-along or a sit-along with an agency for multiple reasons. One, it allows them to start to establish rapport and build a relationship with their local agencies. Two, it allows them to experience what we experience rather than just hear about it. 
And three, it gives the agency to, uh, an opportunity to act as an assessment center to give feedback, which is required. Hey, was this person good? Did they get it? Did they establish rapport? Were they a bunker sniffer? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm a, what is it? Do, do, you, do you sign off on this person? So we're really excited about that um, certification. We have a federal grant now from the Department of Health and Human Services, their HRSA division. Among the offerings in that grant, we're supporting small and rural agencies with about 30 or fewer personnel. But one of the supports is a scholarship to that certification for a local mental health provider in recognition that when a lot of rural responders get to the point where they want to reach out for help, there's nobody in their community who gets it. Um, so we've really been approaching in a comprehensive fashion, the challenges we see them moving from the individual to the system. In addition to that, to Brad's point, we offer the Responder Strong Mental Health Curriculum. That's one of our flagship programs. We created it back in 2018. It's built on the physiology of stress, understanding the stress injury formation model. We encompass the research around the response professions in particular with regards to anxiety, depression, substance misuse, domestic violence, suicidality. We normalize the reactions as being part of that stress reaction. We normalize it by talking about the prevalence, even though we don't talk about it as openly as we should across the country. Then we launch into suicide awareness and prevention, what to do when you recognize it in yourself or one of your coworkers, how to respond. And then we in follow up to talking about, it's very seldom the single headline grabbing incident that gets any one of us. It's more the accumulation of the small S stressors and the small T traumas over time. And when our stress buckets fill up a, a drop at a time, the good news is these seemingly small resiliency practices, whether it's breath work, meditation, mountain biking, target shooting, mindfulness has a lot of different manifestations that those, when they're practiced daily in a habitual way, those also accumulate a drop by drop at a time, balancing out the stressors with the resiliency. Um, so we, we do a lot around that. We have free digital tools for responders and their families that are based around basic human needs, um, allowing people a private place to self-assess, to explore thousands of pieces of vetted content, and when they decide that they, they do want to rely or call on external resources, we link them to resources that we vetted that are in their state. Um, we do a lot of work with one of our partners in Denver, the Center for Relationship Education. We built out a program called Responding to Your Relationships. It's all evidence-based relationship and communication skills. The things we all think we're experts in, but most of us didn't have modeled well for us when we were growing up. And we don't tend to show up as our best relational self under high stress. So we worked with them to really tailor their content to the responder experience. Parasympathetic nervous, back, nervous system backlash after a long shift, shifting worldviews when we see the worst of what humans can do to each other and expand that in our minds to think that humans just suck and that's the way the world is. Um, when we see ourselves being protective and our family sees us as being controlling. So we have a 40 module series we help create with them that they run and operate. We have the core 10 to 15 minutes of the top 10 most popular modules available free on our website called Respond Online. A tremendous number of responders have said, have written into us and said, hey, I watched that with my significant other. Thanks for putting words to the things that I couldn't and for validating it because she or he wasn't going to believe me, but you all said it. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so we really try to take a big comprehensive approach. We work strategically with partners who are very 
accomplished in the field. So NERPS, Center for Relationship Education, Sigma Tactical Wellness, who does inflammation-based screenings for law enforcement and other responders. We really recognize that it's, it's through this collaborative process that we're going to have the greatest impact. And if you mentioned it, I missed it. You, you actually have a crisis online text uh, tab on your website, right? Did we I miss do. that? Yeah, no, I didn't mention that. So crisis text line has been established, I think 10 or 11 years now. They are an international crisis texting service. And there's a lot of reasons why we chose to partner with them. That through the program we have with them, any responder can text badge to 741-741-247 and get a trained crisis counselor who will understand if you're using that word badge, you somehow or another work in this field and these are the types of stressors you're exposed to um, and will help you navigate it. Oftentimes they're there to normalize people's feelings and to validate them and to encourage them to reach out for help elsewhere. So that partnership's been running since October of 2017. Rhonda, this has been an absolutely wonderful uh, talk and discussion. Uh, this, this, I don't know how we piled in so much information in just a short time period. Uh, Austin, you want to add anything in there before we kind of wrap this thing up? That was amazing. I Just to circulate all of that information, I didn't even think I had a chance to really ask all the questions I wanted to. So maybe that's another time if we could steal another hour from you. But I think a a big thing I want to leave on website, emails, how do how do people reach out if they want to get either your trainings or or anything like that? How do they reach out to you? Oh, fantastic. Um, I've mentioned the Responder Strong Mental Health Curriculum a couple of times. We host 20 to 25 free train the trainer events across the country every year. Thanks to COVID, another side effect of it, we always offer those trainings in a hybrid format so you can attend remotely or in person. The remote sessions conducted over Zoom. Um, We always have tech issues, but we always get great feedback that thank you for allowing this remotely. I wouldn't have had the ability to attend this training if you hadn't done that. All of the participants who attend are certified to reteach our content within their local community at will. So we give them access to our shared drive with all of our PowerPoints, our supplemental materials, the instructor's manual. Um, We load them up. They can always come back to us for um, advice or to uh, ask questions. To date, we've trained more than 1,500 facilitators across the country in recognition that the local wellness champions have the rapport the credibility in the networks, we never will. And we're really seeking to empower them. We know they usually don't have the budget or the time or the expertise to create this content on their own. So if you just go to our website, um, www.allclearfoundation.org and search under resources for mental health curriculum, the Train the Trainer calendar is there. Um, We've got multiple events coming up this summer. Everybody is welcome to attend. Um, the feedback we get, we're running, we've been running it since 2018 and 98% of our participants have said they would recommend it to other responders and recommend it to agencies. So we're, we're pretty grateful for, for that positive, uh, reinforcement there. Um, other things, uh, I can be reached at Rhonda at allclearfoundation.org, Rhonda with an H, R-H-O-N-D-A. Um, Please check out our website. The two big things you would want to look for are the solutions tab and the resource tab. The resource tab I misspoke a moment ago is our brick and mortar external resource directory. The solutions tab is where all of our tools and education are located. 
Um, if you are a small agency and are interested in the HRSA grant, look under partnerships in HRSA or just send me an email. I'll write back. You know, this is the true, uh, the, the true build it and give it away format of, of taking so much and having, I think it shows the heart of all clear. It shows the heart, obviously of Rhonda Kelly of, of developing this, uh, and, and, and not just because I'm one of your trainers, but I absolutely love training this because it really is giving the information away. Now go teach it. And I think one of the important components that I personally would, uh, would offer up is that it, it, it's not built for a high level mental health professional to, to actually go and talk about it. The curriculum is actually built to undergird with your supportive experience to, to, Give it away to another person. Just keep giving it away. Just keep giving it away. And I think uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Well, Rhonda, let's uh, let's close this out with just a big thank you for coming on board. And I uh, echo uh, Austin in saying we'd love to have you back. There's so much that we left on the table. Uh, uh, I would love to explore a lot more, uh, both on the mental health, culturally competent uh, providers, and the other pieces. You and I talk often about this leadership component. I think there's so much left there to talk about that uh, maybe if you, if time, I know you're a busy girl, you got a lot going on and thank you so much for just carving out a little bit of time for us. Uh, So with that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Chateau Recovery is a 16 bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.